Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Adrian Messer from UE Systems to the show. We talk a little bit more about how to use ultrasound as a predictive maintenance tool and different mechanical faults that you can detect. We also dive into some of the nuts and bolts of setting up an ultrasound program, including where and how often you should take readings. We also discuss what your procedure should look like so you can standardize your ultrasound program across the board. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. And also, if you like the show, I would really appreciate it if you tell your colleagues in reliability and maintenance about it. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email at robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Now, before we get into the episode, I have a special offer from Upkeep. So let's hear that. Thanks for listening. Do you want a better reliability program? Do you want better data quality in your CMMS? Well, having frustrated and overworked shop floor people isn't the way to get that great reliability program. Often we make our mechanics, millwrights, and operators do paper rounds and then transcribe that information into a desktop CMMS. This causes more frustration and will likely lose data quality in that process. So why don't we try something different? Upkeep maintenance management is different. It's a mobile-first CMMS that takes the work out of work orders with its easy-to-use mobile application. With a snap of a picture and just a few keystrokes on your mobile device, you can update work orders in a matter of seconds. Upkeep is a mobile-first CMMS designed to be easy for your maintenance personnel. So easy, it was voted number one for ease of use by maintenance teams. Rob's Reliability Project has partnered with Upkeep to not only give you a great mobile-first CMMS, but also if you purchase an annual subscription, you get one month free and a bonus one-hour free coaching call with me. Make your reliability program better and make your text lives easier by going to robsreliability.com slash upkeep and sign up today. Hey guys, I'm here with Adrian Messer from UE Systems. I'm excited about this one. We're going to talk a little bit more today about ultrasound analysis. Adrian, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. Hope everybody listening in is doing okay too. It's a beautiful day here in South Carolina. Must be nice to be in South Carolina. I'm up in Edmonton, Alberta. It's about minus 30. We've had about minus 30 for the last four or five days here. I'm getting tired of it. (laughs) Yeah, you and a lot of other people. (laughs) (laughs) This polar vortex thing, I'm not a fan of it. I don't know that I'm a fan of any vortex, (laughs) to be honest. That's right. So Adrian, you know, if people are listening, you know, Adrian is the U.S. operations manager for UE Systems. You've worked there for a long time, over 15 years. 
you know, Adrian, do you want to give us a little background of how you got your start in maintenance and reliability? Yeah, um, I was thinking about this. You know, I wish I had some kind of a fascinating story about how I uh, got involved with UE Systems, but uh, I had just graduated from Clemson University in 2001. So at that point, you know, I was kind of still trying to figure out what I wanted to do career-wise. So I had been applying for some jobs here and there and uh, came across this one from UE Systems. Uh, it was for a regional manager. So we have uh, regional managers uh, strategically located really across the world. And uh, this one was uh, a position to be covering or, you know, have an area of responsibility for part of the Southeast, uh, mainly the uh, Carolinas, a little bit of Georgia and a little bit of Tennessee. So, uh, you know, I said, what the heck, I applied for it and um, got called for an interview Interviewed on a Saturday just prior to a Clemson football game. I was actually uh, getting ready to head to the game, and um, uh, the guy who is now my boss called and said, "Hey, I, we were supposed to have interviewed on Sunday." He said, "I'm, you know, here in town. You know, would you like to go ahead and come over?" And I said, "Yeah." So uh, we sat and chatted for about an hour, and. Um, that was on Saturday, uh, was made an offer on Monday and I accepted on a Tuesday. And, uh, that's kind of where we are today. Uh, my first official day with UE systems was October the 6th, 2003. And, um, quite honestly, I couldn't imagine doing anything different. Uh, absolutely enjoy what I do. Uh, Rob, you're kind of in the same boat, but, uh, when people ask me what I do, I compare it to the TV show, how it's made. Um, you know, the, the fun thing about what I do is I get to go out into a lot of different plants, a lot of different facilities, and in turn, uh, see how things are made. So, uh, in, in this time with UE systems, I've gotten to see a lot of, a lot of cool things. And, uh, it's just really fun to go out and, and see, see how things are made and to, to see people's process and their, you know, maintenance reliability, how they maintain things. So it, it really is a fun, fun job. So even in the Southeastern U.S., there's still, you know, not everything takes a break for football, eh? <laughs> well, yeah, college football, you know, is king down here. Uh, so from, you know, first of September to end of November. Um, yeah, it, it's fun because everybody's talking about it. So, uh, and sp for Clemson, uh, for those of you that follow follow college football, uh, it certainly has been a great time to be a Clemson Tiger. Uh, we just celebrated our uh, second national championship in three years, and uh, look to be headed back there again uh, next year if we're fortunate enough. So, uh, anyway, it's it's great to uh, to be a Clemson Tiger for sure. <laughs> yeah, you really blew out Alabama in that game. Adrian, last time we 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 had your colleague Sean Miller on the podcast. So Sean was he's the Canadian manager for UE Systems. And we talked a little bit about ultrasound and using ultrasound for greasing, air leaks, electrical faults. What's your opinion on the best uses for ultrasound? Yeah, that's a great thought. And um it, it's been amazing, you know, in, in my time with UE Systems, when I first started, all people wanted to talk about was compressed air leak detection. You know, at that point in time, people only thought of ultrasound as a compressed air leak detector. And still today, that is by far the most widely used application for ultrasound. But uh, along those same lines, uh, some of the hardest people to talk to about ultrasound technology were 
people with extensive vibration backgrounds. So people who had been doing vibration analysis for 20 plus years, you know, they didn't want anything to do with ultrasound. They didn't believe in it, uh, didn't understand it. And then fast forward to today, um, you know, some of the best users that we have of our technology are people with extensive backgrounds in vibration analysis. So it's that to me has been the most rewarding thing um, to see is the acceptance of ultrasound for mechanical type inspections. So to complement vibration analysis, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do. You know, we're not trying to rely solely on one technology, but we're trying to use a multitude of technologies to gather as much information as we can on an asset to determine the state of its health or condition. So uh, I would say, you know, um, the majority of our users now uh, are using ultrasound for mechanical type inspections, whether that be, you know, ultrasound first as kind of a first line of defense. Uh, so we go out and we collect ultrasound data. And then we, if something is in alarm, then we go out with vibration just to that point to do kind of a second opinion or a uh, kind of a, a test to say, okay, ultrasound says, hey, there's a problem. Vibration comes in and says, yeah, here's exactly what the problem is. Um, and then along those same lines, um, people like to talk about using ultrasound for condition-based bearing lubrication. You know, I'd say that's probably our second most widely used application for ultrasound is the, is the prevention of over and under lubrication of bearings using ultrasound. Uh, and that's uh, another application where if you're in a plant or facility and you're having a lot of failures due to lubrication issues, then you can have some pretty quick payback and improve reliability pretty quickly uh, just by simply using ultrasound for that application. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the greasing one is one that, you know, as someone works in lubrication, I see all the time. Uh, like I see plants where they don't even know what they're greasing. Like the grease line goes up, you know, up the wall and, and to somewhere else. And they just, they walk around weekly and just, they pump more grease in there. And I, I never understand, like, like, wouldn't you want to know where it goes? Wouldn't you want to know what grease you're supposed to put into it? Like these questions never, never pop up. I guess I kind of want to jump off that a little bit, Adrian, is, you know, like, it seems to me that it's like, you know, I work at an oil analysis lab and I, when I teach lubrication or oil analysis, I always say, like, if you look in the textbooks and you look at a lot of the literature out there, they're like, well, you should have a primary sample point and then multiple secondary sample points. And I always take that and I say, have your primary oil sample point. If you find something wrong, then use a different technology because it'll kind of give you a holistic picture on that. So why do you think the vibration people were so, you know, resistant to using another technology? Well, I think what it boiled down to, I think it was just because that's what they were comfortable with. Uh, you know, that's what they had been trained on. It's the only thing they had ever used. So they really had no reason to to learn anything else. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like any kind of change. You know, there's always going to be reluctance to change. 
you know, doing things differently, uh, doing things differently than the way you were trained or what you're used to. So there's always a little bit of resistance, but I think the more that ultrasound became mainstream and, you know, once they realized that people were having success with it and, um, uh, mainly the greasing part of it, you know, that, that is, uh, one that really kind of took off. So I think, you know, again, just the more that they learned about the technology, um, the more that they kind of understood how it works and how it can complement them and better their vibration analysis. So great example is on slow speed bearings. So, um, where certainly if you have the right data collector, if you have the right software, and of course, if you have the time, uh, you can certainly do vibration on slow speed applications, but it's much quicker and easier to use ultrasound. So that's kind of where it began uh, is on the slow speed bearings and the ultrasonic assisted lubrication. Now, does the ultrasound give you that kind of granularity that you get from vibration where you can say like, well, you know, it's the rollers or it's the inner or outer. Do you get that kind of level of diagnostics? We do. Um, several years ago, we actually integrated into our UE Spectralizer software, which is the software that's used uh, for the analysis of recorded ultrasound sound files. Uh, we integrated a bearing fault frequency calculator into that uh, software. So it, you know, based off of the speed and the number of balls or the number of bearings, it will calculate out an inner race, outer race, ball pass, and a cage frequency defects. Um, also along the same lines of mechanical, uh, we have started to see examples of people detecting fluting uh, or electrical current into their bearings. So that will typically give you a 60 hertz harmonic on your FFT. And that's, you know, uh, a good indicator that you have some sort of electrical current flowing into your, your bearings or 50 hertz, you know, depending on where you are. Wow. Interesting. I, I didn't know that. So, it, and that's why I have people on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, where ultrasound tends to be really good, you know, I, uh, we're really good at finding these early stage premature type bearing defects, even before, you know, vibration analysis. And that's, you know, indicated on the, you know, P to F curve, which is something that, you know, we didn't come up with, but, uh, but certainly, you know, it ultimately depends, you know, what technology you use depends on what failure it is that you're looking for. You know, so there's things that vibration is very good at where ultrasound is not. Uh, and But if you're, again, looking for these early stage type bearing wear and fatigue type faults, then ultrasound is a good technology and it can be used quickly and easily to find those types of failures. Absolutely. And that's another thing, you know, that we talked about last time with Sean was, that you have to be aware that the PF curve, the one that we generally see is for rolling element bearings, right? So we can't just blindly apply that to everything and say, well, ultrasound's the best technology. We only need to use ultrasound. What failure mode are you trying to detect? That's going to really change that PF curve. And, you know, you may be using a different technology. That's right. So... I guess I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, setting up kind of a, an ultrasound program. So what are the typical intervals that you'll do your inspections? Is it just like, you know, are you just going to walk around the plant and, and point it at everything? How do we pick the right locations? Like, why don't we start off with picking the right locations? So how do we walk around and decide where should we look on equipment or listen on equipment? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I'll start with, you know, by nature, high-frequency sound is very low energy, so it tends not to travel very far from the source. So for, uh, say, a a motor and a pump setup, for instance, you know, ideally where we'd like to take our readings are going to be as close to the bearing housing as possible. Uh, So that's going to give us, um, again, we're closer to the source, so that's going to give us our best location to to listen to that bearing, if you will. and then the repeatability. So we want to make sure that wherever we decide to make contact with our contact probe or with our ultrasound instrument, uh, we want to make sure that we always test in that same location every single time. So that could be just as simple as uh, marking it with a paint pen, um, you know, just some kind of indicator as to this is where we want to make contact. Uh, we also, uh, we provide or we have available mounting pads uh, that you can epoxy to the asset, and they actually say ultrasonic test point on them. So again, we're, we're testing in the same location every single time and having a way that anybody can go out and identify where to make contact is going to be important. Um, but again, the closer we are to that bearing, the better off we're going to be. Um, if you have equipment that is inaccessible, like Rob, you know, you gave the example of, you know, the grease fittings extended out. You know, we've got this grease fitting and we're pumping grease, but, you know, where is that going? So if we want to be able to listen while we're applying grease, then we have sensors available that you can epoxy and mount uh, to the asset. And you can bring that out. They're just simply on a cabled connection that'll plug in directly to your device. Or you can bring as many as eight of them together to a junction box. So we can take as many as eight readings in one location. Uh, so again, that'll allow us to be able to listen while we're applying grease. A uh, good example there was I was in a plant a couple of years ago, and they had just recently installed some of these remote access sensors to uh, pair up with their uh, grease fittings, which were extended out about 12 feet. So the normal PM uh, called for about 34 pumps of grease. So we were listening and watching the decibel level. We got to 34 pumps of grease and we saw no change in the decibel level. Well, they wanted to keep going. So we finally got to 58 pumps of grease before the decibel level just bottomed out. So had they been following the normal PM of just 34 pumps of grease, no grease would have ever reached that bearing housing. Um, so again, a great, great application to make use of, you know, being able to listen while we're applying grease to, to make sure that we are getting grease to the bearing. Um, but yeah, so repeatability, making sure we make contact in the same location every single time. And ideally, closest point to the bearing is going to be our preferred uh, place to make contact. Awesome. And I guess I wanted to, so I've gotten this question at a, at a course that I taught a few, I guess it was a few months ago. And they asked me about, you know, when I recommended doing ultrasonic greasing, they said that they use it and it, you know, the sound falls away, but then if they come back 15 minutes later, the the noise is back to the beginning. Like, how does that work? Yep, that's that is a common question. So, uh, and again, when people first start out using ultrasound, one of the most common questions is, "How do I know if what I'm listening to is good or bad?" You know, we don't really know at what stage of life that that asset is, and it's common in people who aren't currently doing any kind of condition monitoring whatsoever. Of course, when you first start out using ultrasound or, or really any condition monitoring technology, you're going to find a lot of things that are bad. So. If that decibel level 
if if they grease it and the decibel level falls, but within just a few minutes that decibel level comes back up, uh, that could be indicative of the onset of some other kind of failure. So, you know, lubrication, if you catch uh, a bearing in some sort of early stage fatigue or wear early enough, that lubrication can hide that problem. It can kind of mask it or dampen it, uh, but that decibel level will quickly come back up if you have a an asset or a bearing that is in a failure mode that is you know early early failure mode i'll say uh so that's that can be typical uh also uh kind of typical is if we're applying grease and we're watching the decibel level and we see no change in the decibel level after we've applied grease it's usually due to one of two things um when we talk about lubrication, you know, the, the tendency for time-based lubrication, which is how most people lubricate their equipment, they go out every month or every every so often and they apply a certain number of pumps of grease, whether that bearing needs it or not. Well, the tendency for that approach is to over-lubricate. So if we're applying grease and there's no change in the decibel level, more than likely that seal has been compromised. So through previous over-lubrication, the seal is compromised. So now all that grease that we're applying is going out into areas of that equipment where it shouldn't be going. And therefore you'd see little to no change in the decibel level. Uh, or that bearing is in some sort of failure mode that is beyond the lack of lubrication. So if it has some sort of defect, uh, the decibel level will change little to none. That's a great answer. So just, I guess we should be clear for people who are listening when they're greasing using ultrasonics, like what should they hear and how do they know they've reached the optimal point? Yep. So the concept is based off of friction. So when you have a bearing that needs grease, there's going to be an increase in friction, therefore an increase in noise. So what we want to see happening is if we're watching the decibel level as we're applying grease, we want to see that decibel level falling. So as grease enters that bearing housing, there will be less friction, therefore less noise. So once that decibel level falls back down to a more optimal level, then we stop greasing. Now, if we go out there and the bearing already has enough grease, then it's usually pretty quick. Just after a couple of pumps of grease, we'll start to see the decibel level going up. So if we're ever applying grease and the decibel level starts to go up, we need to stop because we've reached the threshold where we've started to apply too much grease. So again, over lubrication, when we start to apply too much grease, um, that in turn creates more pressure and friction inside the bearing housing and therefore more noise. Uh, so that's a good indicator when to stop applying grease. Yeah. And that's something that I think people don't entirely understand is, you know, with over lubrication, like you're going to build up that internal friction and then the heat goes up and the pressure goes up and it's pretty damaging for your equipment. It is. And I, I tend to see more failures due to over lubrication than I do under lubrication. That's, I think that's a fact. Oh yeah. I would a hundred percent agree with that. So I guess jumping back, um, when you're setting up your ultrasonic inspections, like how often are kind of your general recommendations to inspect equipment? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, in the beginning, when you are just setting up your routes, uh, you want to collect data a little more frequently than needed. And that's just to build that initial trend or build that initial history. Um, 
And that way you'll know uh, pretty quickly what's good and what's bad. So if we're collecting data, let's say, uh, you know, a reading a week for a month, and if that decibel level continues to trend upwards, of course, if you have a, a bearing or if you have something that's in a failure mode, you know, it's it's only going to get worse as it continues to run. So therefore, it's only going to continue to make more noise. So through that initial trend, if we see the decibel level continuing to rise, we pretty well know that we've set a baseline on a piece of equipment that is in a failure mode. Um, so once we have that initial trend established, uh, we can then establish a baseline. Uh, also, a good practice is to uh, take a grease gun out with you. So if we apply grease to a bearing and that decibel level falls, that's a good reading to take and use as your baseline because that bearing was already in need of grease. We applied grease, the decibel level fell. So that's a good reading to take and use as your baseline. Uh, but once you have your baseline set uh, and your alarm level set, uh, from there forward, I would say on average, uh, most people are going to be taking ultrasonic readings on mechanical equipment uh, once a month. Uh, if, again, if we have collected data once a month for uh, a year or more and we have seen no change in decibel level, everything, you know, is still, uh, you know, out of alarm, uh, then maybe we can back off that frequency to every other month. Uh, but I think I think a good default is to default to asset criticality. So if it's a highly critical asset, I would say uh, once a month. Uh, if it's something that's not as critical, then maybe every other month. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we have to always consider criticality or risk as a starting point. That's definitely a good point. So your baseline really should be when the equipment's properly lubricated and ideally it's not in a broken condition, right? Uh, yeah, that's best case scenario, but that doesn't always happen. So that's why I suggested taking uh, the data a little more frequently than uh, necessary initially. And that's just in, in order to establish a good trend. But again, even if we uh, set a baseline on a piece of equipment that's already in a failure mode, that decibel level will continue to rise over time. Um, now, where ultra to, to take it a step further, kind of going back to uh, a little bit of our initial conversation about uh, you know identifying bearing fault frequencies. Uh, in addition to taking those decibel level readings, ideally we would also like to be able to record the sound of that bearing. And uh, again, when we play that back in the spectrum analysis software, that paints a picture as to what exactly is happening with that bearing. So if that bearing has some sort of failure, uh, whether that be, you know, inner race, outer race, that will show on that FFT uh, and your time waveform. So uh, that is also a good indicator as to the what the health of that bearing is. So that it takes it a little step further to where we're not re relying solely on the decibel level, but we're now able to diagnose uh, what that uh, what that the the health of that bearing, if you will. So the good thing about that is if we record both the decibel level and our sound file recording with that baseline. Once that point reaches an alarm, we can then overlay and compare the baseline sound file to the current alarm level sound file. And you guys have software to do that that's on the computer or is it as part of the gun itself? 
Well, uh, you can do it both ways. Uh, so our UltraProbe 15000 actually has onboard spectrum analysis. So when you load a route into it, it brings over that baseline information. So uh, that baseline information includes the sound file recording. So if we want to do an on-the-spot comparison, we could certainly do it uh, on the UltraProbe 15000. If we want to do some kind of further analysis or reporting, we can do that back in the software on the computer. Awesome. And so... I guess my next question is sort of like when I when I talk about taking people on their kind of oil analysis journey, typically what I recommend early is one or two people take all of the samples just so then we get that repeatability just in the, you know, in the sampling method itself. Other than like we talked about before, like the the location itself being the same, is there any other way that like you recommend taking the ultrasound sample? Like, is there a method to it? Yep. And, uh, and that's what we see uh, a lot of times is, um, and I'm, I'm kind of leading into procedures here. So, you know, you can have the best ultrasound, the best vibration, the best infrared, the best whatever. But if you don't have the right procedures in place, not only procedures for how the tool is going to be used, but procedures in place that allow for the use of the tool, um, the, the tool doesn't become beneficial at that point. Um, so, you know, procedure wise, you know, we want to make sure that people are trained. We want to make sure that they have clear instructions uh, and understand what it is that they're doing. Now, with ultrasound, you know, we're, we're fortunate in that it, with just through some initial training uh, and understanding of the technology, you know, someone can be competent enough to go out and, and begin to use it. And that's where you get the most experience. And that's kind of where everything starts to make sense uh, as to th what things should and shouldn't sound like. And you can get a pretty quick idea uh, of the health of an asset just through simply doing comparison readings. And that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, procedure wise, we want to make sure that we have a good procedure in place for how the tool is going to be used, um, how often we're going to collect the data, what equipment we're going to monitor with ultrasound. Um, so that's that's all that all kind of comes into play in thinking about the impl implementation of the tool. Absolutely. And and so how long do you go out? Like, let's say we're going out to check a bearing how long do we need to be out there for Does it just depend on how fast it's moving or is there any other consideration? Yep. So, um, I would say on the average, uh, by the time that we, you know, go out, we make contact, uh, we get our decibel level reading on the instrument. Uh, if we're recording the decibel level and the sound file recordings, um, I would say uh, on the average, a good length of time for a sound file recording is going to be 15 to no more than 20 seconds. Obviously, if you have something that's turning slower, it's going to take a little longer. Uh, so we can go as long as a minute on our sound file recordings. So even if you have something that's turning one RPM, you can get uh, you know the one minute sound file length, and that'll give you the one full rotation. Um, but on the average, you know, again, by the time we make contact, uh, we adjust the sensitivity, get our decibel level, record a sound file. Uh, we're talking, you know, 30 to 40 seconds per point. Uh, if we're only storing, uh, decibel level readings only, it's going to be much quicker than that. Awesome. I guess my next question, you know, I assume you get this question a ton and 
it's what happens if it's noisy in my plant? Like, can I still use ultrasound? Oh, yep, certainly. And uh, again, that's the beauty of the technology. Um, and I always use air leak detection as the example because, uh, you know, some people even still today, the way that they go out and look for air leaks, they wait until, you know, a holiday or uh, when the plant is shut down, say over the weekend. And they walk around, you know, when everything's off and they walk around and try to hear the leaks that they can hear audibly just with their own hearing. But with ultrasound, we're listening for sound that is above the range of what we're capable of hearing. So in most cases, ambient plant background noise, you know, machines running, you know, forklifts, you know, lots of noise uh, doesn't come into play with ultrasound because the machine or the device is only listening for the sound that we can't hear. So we don't have to wait for a shutdown or a holiday to go out and look for air leaks. We can typically do that when everything is up and running and therefore it doesn't interfere with any, any production or we don't have to shut a machine down, uh, to look for those leaks. Um, so if you put it in terms of, you know, normal human hearing, you know, on the average, we as humans, the upper threshold of what we're capable of hearing uh, sound at is around 17 kilohertz, 16 to 17 kilohertz, uh, with the lowest frequency that we can tune or set the instrument to is 20 kilohertz. So even at its lowest frequency setting, it's still listening for sound that's above our range of hearing. So uh, now there, there are sources of competing noise. Uh, so if I'm in an area where Let's say we have some uh, robotic welding going on. Uh, you know, of course, that's going to produce an arcing sound. Uh, so if we're trying to go in and look for leaks in that area, we just have to be aware of, you know, the sounds that could, the potential sounds that could be in that area. So just being aware of your surroundings and uh, and identifying what is supposed to have sound and not supposed to have sound. But, uh, you know, again, the sound of uh, welding is going to be a lot different than the sound of an air leak. Um, but no, and, and to answer your question, yeah, to answer your question, the short answer is no, we don't have to be too concerned about uh, plant background noise. And even like if we're using the probe, right? Like if we have the probe hooked up to the equipment, we don't even necessarily need to be able to hear if we can look at the spectral, right? Uh, that's right. Yep. So um, we, um, if we're doing mechanical inspection, so then instead of listening through the air like we would for an air leak, or if we're scanning an an electrical cabinet, you know, for any airborne uh, corona tracking or arcing sounds, yeah. So then with mechanical, we're using an actual what we call a stethoscope module or a contact probe. Um, to physically make contact with that piece of equipment. So it, it gives us uh, a better range of view uh, as far as not being too concerned about, again, background noise or sounds in a noisy environment. Perfect. I guess the next question I had, I wanted to kind of dive a little deeper into the ultrasonic sensors that you mentioned before. So you did talk or you wrote an article in Maint World magazine about how uh, U UE Systems and Quartic kind of partnered to do some AI on top of the, uh, the ultrasound sensors. Are the ultrasonic sensors, is that a common thing that you're starting to see now or where do you see this technology? 
Uh, I wished, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that was uh, Blair's work with uh, Quartic. Um, if you haven't read that article, what Blair did, uh, Blair was involved in a project. It was a pharmaceutical application to where they needed to monitor this steam valve that was going into an autoclave. So if the steam valve was say open when it was supposed to be shut or if it was leaking and allowing too much steam into the autoclave that could potentially affect the batch of drugs that inside of the autoclave so uh in pharmaceutical applications you know if you're if you have quality issues you know you could be talking about millions of dollars in wasted product uh just from a leaky steam valve so uh, what Blair had done is they used our Ultratrack 750 sensor uh, mounted to the outlet or the discharge side of the steam valve, and they had the data from that sensor going into the artificial intelligence platform provided by Quartic um, to do basically do machine learning on what that valve was doing. Um, so it was the first, to my knowledge, the first example of ultrasound being used for uh, the latest buzzword in our industry, you know, industrial Internet of Things, Industry 4.0, um, you know, artificial intelligence type applications. So uh, and that's just going to be the beginning. Uh, you know, that was that one example was on a steam valve, but the same sensor could be used on a mechanical asset. Um you know, any kind of highly critical uh, pressure, you know, safety relief valve, uh, the same sensor could be used. So that it's just the beginning, uh, and we'll continue to see that in the future. Um, I'll also say, too, that um, another common question is regarding data. So um, it used to be that you had... You know, each technology kind of had its own database. So your infrared camera, you know, your infrared database, your vibration database, of course, your ultrasound database. But now a very common question for us is how can we get our data moved into this or that? So I think we'll continue to see people do or want to do more with uh, their data, whether that be uh, directly in, tied into their CMMS, or whether that be tied into other some other kind of uh, dashboard, um, and certainly uh, those are the fun kinds of things to work on. Uh, we have some in the works now, uh, so it but it's it's customer driven. So if there's a customer out there listening and they want to be able to take their ultrasound data into this or that, then, you know, just approach us and ask us about it. You know, we're willing to work with anybody uh, because certainly that's where the industry is headed. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. It seems like customers are really smart now. I mean, obviously customers, everyone is starting to be smart now. And it's, it's something that we've understood for a while is you have to look at more than one thing to understand the complete picture of the equipment. Yep. But it, it's a fun time to be in the industry for sure. Um, I was just at a conference a few weeks ago. It was a, a conference for people in the nuclear power industry. And um, I was kind of walking the exhibit hall, checking some things out. And uh, there was a uh, very well-known company. If I said the name, you'd know who they were. Uh, but they make all sorts of valves, and then they make all kinds of controls for valves. But in their booth, they were... Uh, demonstrating virtual reality glasses. Um, so you could put on the virtual reality goggles and, vir and see, you know, virtually 
every kind of valve that they make. So you could see the valve, you could see the inner workings, you know, all the control, all the things that the valve did. Uh, and you could see that in virtual reality. So it's, it's starting to become more mainstream. Uh, it's hilarious though, uh, right now, because so many people are using all the buzzwords, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, somebody, somebody kind of compared it a little bit to like the wild west right now, uh, as far as, uh, what's out there. So it'll be interesting to continue to follow this over the next few years and, and kind of see where it, where it kind of starts to level off. But it certainly is a fun time to be in the industry because there are some, some cool things out there. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think it's really exciting time. So Adrian, you know, you guys at UE Systems, you recently rolled out, I believe it's called 24-7. Can you give us a little intro to what that is? Yep. So uh, that's our uh, latest product. Um, so what it is, it's called the Forecast. So it uses uh, some sensors that we have called RAS or Remote Access Sensors. Uh, and again, the funny thing about these RAS sensors, you know, I mentioned the Ultratrack 750 uh, that Blair used. Uh, we have another one called the ECM586, which is something that you can mount inside of a, an electrical cabinet and it will continuously listen for any kind of potential electrical fault. You know, those three sensors that I just mentioned, we've had as long as I've been with UE systems. So we've, they've been around for longer than 15 years, but we have more of those sensors in use now than at any time ever before in UE systems history. And part of it is being driven by, you know, some of these things that we've talked about with uh, industrial internet of things. And then some of it is being driven by safety. So uh, just the fact that we don't have access to the equipment, to take readings like we would with traditional handheld data collection methods. So we still have to monitor that. So the forecast uses these remote access sensors. So they are sensors that we can mount to the asset. Uh, they're on a cabled connection, a BNC cable. Uh, we can make those as short as three feet or as long as a hundred feet. And you can bring as many as four of them together to the forecast. Uh, the forecast itself is just a, a box with some internal controls, but it also has its own internal data storage. So it's kind of like a, a video recorder. So it's always storing data. But then what makes it powerful is the software. So in the UltraTrend DMS software, where we set it up, we choose how often we want that data to come over. And that data can come over either wired directly from the Ethernet cable, or we can uh, plug a router into it and make that wireless. Um, so we can choose how often we want that data to come over from the forecast. Uh, so we could say, let's say once a month, like we would traditionally go out with a handheld ultra probe once a month to take a reading, well, we're going to bring over a reading once a month from the forecast. There's a second parameter that if that point reaches an alarm level, we can begin to bring that data over more frequently. So instead of once a month, we can say we want to see that reading once a day or once an hour. And then we can also choose to bring over data just prior to the alarm and then just after the alarm. So we can kind of see what led up to that alarm level and then what happened afterwards. So again, it's just a way to do remote continuous monitoring. Uh, and we can do that over the Ethernet, or we can do that wirelessly. And again, that data, uh, the decibel level readings and the sound file recordings will come over directly to our software. 
And uh, where we have those in use now, we have uh, several in some distribution type uh, facilities to where they have some, again, assets that aren't accessible without the use of a ladder or a man lift or even some that are not accessible due to safety while the machine's running. Um, overhead crane applications, but, you know, again, uh, anywhere where you have limited access to the equipment due to safety uh, or guarding, uh, it's a great, great place to install the forecast product. Absolutely. No, that's, that's a great introduction. And something that I saw last week, I was at a site um, and they had, they had guarding up on one of their ball mills and it's something that I had never seen before, but I guess their site's a little bit newer or they put some new safety regulations in and they put that guard, like the guarding up where you couldn't even access the gearbox itself. So good on them. It's good to see that because absolutely like safety, as much as we, we talk about it being important, it's really the actions that matter. So it's great that they're doing that. Yep. So Adrian, uh, you know, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. I had a fun time. I learned some stuff. I'm excited about it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Rob. Hey, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity. Uh, it's a great conversation and it's always fun to educate people on airborne and structure borne ultrasound for sure. Absolutely. So do you have any plugs? Like, are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Uh, where should people find you? Should they follow you on LinkedIn? Do you have anything like that to tell us about? Sure. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So uh, just look me up, Adrian Messer. And uh, I guess the next conference I'm going to be at is going to be a mining conference in Denver, Colorado here at the end of the month, uh, February, uh, the last week of February. Uh, and with that being February, uh, at UE Systems, we do a series of webinars. We normally do one a month uh, on various topics related to reliability. But for the month of February, we dedicate the month of February to reliability-centered lubrication. So we have our first webinar coming up on that on Valentine's Day. February 14th. Uh, and we'll do a series of three webinars uh, in February, again, uh, centered on how to improve reliability practice, uh, lubrication practices. Uh, and then after that, uh, May will be here before you know it. So uh, in May, uh, we have our Ultrasound World and Reliable Asset World conferences coming up. Um, the conference, uh, so it's two conferences simultaneously. Everyone comes together in the morning for an opening keynote. And then after the keynote, you break out and go into either the ultrasound world track or the reliable asset world track. Uh, we also offer a software class on the last day of the conference. So if you're using our UltraTrend DMS or UE Spectralizer software, uh, you can attend the software classes if you want to learn more about the software. And uh, we also offer the CMRP and the CMRT exams uh, throughout the week as well. And nothing says love and Valentine's Day than lubrication and ultrasound. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> awesome. You know, everyone who's still listening, I hope you, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. You know, Adrian, I, thanks for coming on again. And I look forward to seeing you. I don't know if I'll be able to make it out to reliable asset world, but I, I'm hoping to. But either way, I will for sure see you this year. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll cross paths at, uh, at some event somewhere. <laughs> the event road warriors, right? So everyone who's still listening, you know, I appreciate you listening and spending your time with us. 
Um, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. I've started to do some bonus content that's just on that page and on Facebook. So if you're just following me on LinkedIn, you will miss out on some of that stuff. So it's just a bonus for people who are into the show. That's all I got for you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.